0: We're going to enjoy this tonight, but on Friday, we're going to have another team meeting and we're going to get locked in on next year.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to Protect the Rock, Clemson Podcast from the Athletic. I'm Nicole Auerbach. She's Grace Rayner. And we are finally in state of the program time. Um, Before we start peppering Grace with questions about that, Let's just talk about a little bit about what it is and and how it's a little bit different this year for 2020, Grace, Um, because obviously we normally start with like an overarching question that programs need to answer. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that this year it would be uh, when and if are we going to have a season?
0: Correct. Yeah. So that kind of made, like you said, the landscape of state of the program a little bit different this year in terms of, you know, in years past, I think last year, the biggest on-field question, I'm trying to think of what it even was for Clemson. I don't remember. It was probably
1: the D-line. I think that's yeah, what we, that sounds we spent right. most of the offseason talking about. But usually it's something like that. And I think this year we got rid of that section because the biggest question facing every program is the same. And it's it's about you know the timing of the season, what a season might look like, and, and really also, hey, no one's even with their players right now.
0: Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's just so, especially with a with a, a date like this one, I mean, Clemson is obviously the first state of the program. We're recording today on May 4th. Um, so there's just so much time between now and potentially the start of the season to where things could change at any given moment. So it just doesn't make a ton of sense to speculate kind of right now, which is why I think everyone will see as soon as they pull up these series, there's kind of an editor's note saying, hey, you know, this pandemic and its impact is unprecedented. You know, here's an annual off-season assessment.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the right way to look at it. That these are kind of like a glimpse into the program, like actually the state of it, right? Like the sure. the short term, the long term, historical context, and and all of that. And you know, it makes sense to start with Clemson, and just considering you know what we're expecting of them, you know, when the season comes. But Grace, you know, if if there was an overall question, because you do get into certain position groups about like, you know, here, this could be the strength of the defense or this could be the strength of the offense. Um, But from an on field standpoint, you know, what are those are those question marks? Sure. Um, I think the
0: biggest question mark, and I think any anyone at Clemson would probably be the first to admit, is that. There is just so much turnover on the offensive line that, you know, this bit, this group is basically starting completely over. I mean, you've got one starter coming back, and that is left tackle Jackson Carmen, who's going to be a junior. And then other than that, every single starter from that 2019 squad is, is completely gone. So Trevor Lawrence is going to have to get used to, you know, just a, a completely different group protecting him every week.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I wonder how much that's going to matter. And, and especially when you do have the luxury of, of you know, we've talked a lot this offseason already about Travis Etienne coming back um, and not necessarily having to make a major change there. Not that Lynn J. Dixon, you know, didn't get reps last season. But what is the impact of a new offensive line when you do return the quarterback who's had so much experience? You do return a running back that has so much experience. And, and that's going to be a bit of a, you know, like a, a safety valve of sorts for 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 a new group that is going to need to get broken in. Oh,
0: for sure. Yeah. And I think that you could kind of flip the, the opposite was true, right? When when Trevor was kind of coming into his own in yeah. terms of really yeah. taking this team over. He had that really veteran O-line and, and that extended into 2019. But yeah, like you said, I mean, Trevor and Travis coming back, really the heart of, of this offense from a skill position standpoint is all back. Um, So I think that that alleviates some pressure and, and, you you know, they they would have worked with them in practice and stuff. And then I think the other thing here is that, you know, these are all, even though they were all backups, they're all pretty experienced backups. Like they all got some pretty significant reps in 2019 and and a lot of those were meaningful competitive reps and then a lot of them were also, you know, it's the fourth quarter and (laughs) like Clemson's ahead by 40.
1: I, I was going to say it wasn't always the fourth fourth quarter. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes quarter, it was sometimes the third. <laughs> it was the second quarter. Um, and and we talked about that last year about what an advantage that would be, and it, and it surely will. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the Tigers returning production chart, which these are swanky. These look great this year. Very. Fancy. I know these tables are nice. I like them. Yeah. Um. So you know what immediately jumps out? We just talked about the O line starts and the lack of experience back. Um. Interceptions also not surprisingly. Um, you know, we they lost some of some very key defensive playmakers. Um, but it's exactly what you said. It, it's just how much comes back from an offensive production standpoint. 87% of the passing yards. Again, that's due to backups playing, not anything about Trevor. Uh 90, 97% of the rushing yards, and 63% of the receiving yards, which which obviously takes into account the loss of T. Higgins, but you bring Justin Ross back. So um, you know, the, the numbers reflect, you know, this, this embarrassment of riches that Clemson does bring back. Um, let, let's take a look at the defense, because I do think that, you know, Isaiah Simmons did a lot um, in a lot of different ways, and, and Tanner Muse, and ba- basically all of the Clemson players that have gone on to the NFL that's going to bring you to Las Vegas at some point, some of them are there. <laughs> um, but walk me through some of the, the, the biggest questions on the defensive side that you kind of went into as you were working on this.
0: I would say the biggest question I have is, and this is something Dabo Sweeney's talked about too, is, okay, we know that one of these starting cornerbacks is going to be Darian Kendrick, and he's going to kind of be the alpha in that group. And it kind of looks like Mario Goodrich is going to get the other starting spot. Um, But Dabo's been kind of looking for like a a third corner to really establish himself as, you know, a co-starter, someone who can can kind of hang in there and, and really compete with the first string guys. So I'm kind of interested to see, you know, is that, Andrew Booth Jr., is it Lee Anthony Williams, is it Sheridan Jones, does freshman Fred Davis come in here and and compete with some of these older guys? Um, so that's probably my biggest question when you look on the back end. And then, of course, as you said, I mean, you can't talk about Clemson's defense in 2020 without talking about replacing Isaiah Simmons. I mean, he's just a total... Uh, he he did it all for them. And, and Mike Jones Jr., I, I talked to him earlier this spring and, and wrote a story about him. And he's really excited to kind of step up into that role. But he also knows, like, he he's not built like Isaiah. So Clemson's going to have to kind of scheme to his strengths and, and, and cater his style like they did with Isaiah because these these two guys are, are not really physically anything alike.
1: Well, and, and I know that Mike Jones is, is someone that has intrigued you for a while because, you know, I talked to him a little bit in the lead up to the title game. He's close with Jake Venables. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, the familiarity you're talking about the person who's going to have to figure out how to play to his strengths is Jake Venables dad. Right. So, you know, what does that mean for someone who is sliding into an important position who is stepping up to fill significant shoes?
0: Sure. I mean, I think that if you are Mike Jones Jr., which, first of all, I should probably preface this by saying, like, I think he's going to be fine. Just because he's four inches shorter and 10 pounds lighter doesn't mean I think
1: he's a bad bad player. But... Um, I th- four four inches, Grace. Who knows? That could be the difference between you know an entire news cycle with the and a, with the way that people evaluate draft process.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Aren't you glad we don't have You're, to draft do that? Like- yes,
1: I am. I mean, imagine you know, like it's like, ooh, his hand is a quarter of an inch shorter than the other person's hand. <laughs> an entire news cycle. But no, no, no. So uh, right, obviously, it's just a very slight different physical makeup sure yeah I mean
0: I just think look like I mean I obviously have a front row seat to Clemson every day so I see Brent Venables every day I don't see a ton of these other coordinators across the country like you do so I'd be kind of interested to throw this question back at you but I think that if you're Mike Jones Jr. and there's one defensive coordinator in the country that you want to scheme specifically to your strengths it's probably Brent Venables and you know Clemson pays him two million dollars for a reason
1: yeah I mean I I was impressed when I chatted with him Um, You know, I think a lot of these Clemson players, you know, who who've gotten some playing time, who are waiting their turn or whatever it might be. I mean, because when when you lead up to a title game and you have those media days and you have access to the entire roster, you you do talk to a variety of different experience. And I I think that one thing that comes across was that these guys know what they're getting into and they're very mature about how they approach it and how they learn from the guys ahead of them, which which is really refreshing. And I, I think, you know, it's part of the culture at Clemson, but also the the faith in 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 what Brent Venables does and changes year in and year out, because I was working on the story about like crazy Brent Venables stories. So that was part of the reason I talked to Mike Jones, Jr., um, you know, his proximity to the family. But it but it's also just the way that they talk about him running practice, the way that they talk about him getting through to people, um, you know, really does come through. And I think that really comes through with the younger guys who then you feel much more confident in them when they have to step up
0: for sure. And I think too that like they're such a a clear I don't know if vision is the right word, but you can just look at so many Clemson defenders who their freshman and sophomore years were kind of quiet, and then boom, junior and senior year they just right. become total studs. Like Tanner Muse comes to mind. Isaiah obviously redshirted his freshman year, came on Wallace. I mean, you you can yeah. there's a whole list of them.
1: Yeah, and and I do think you know as much as you know, Isaiah got attention and he absolutely deserved it. I do think replacing guys like Tanner Mews and Kayvon Walls, we talked about them a lot on this podcast throughout the season. Like we talked about were, Tanner a lot, specifically. You know, a lot. And he got roses, you know, like there was <laughs> a lot of impactful things that that those guys did and brought to this defense. And and you do see that when you look at the returning production um, on, on the defensive side of the ball Um, Grace, I I wanted to talk to you about the recruiting section, um, obviously in the off season, that's, that's a huge topic. And it's funny because there's, there's a chart in the story where it's, um, you know, it's, it's basically tracking, you know, recruiting classes and then how they actually perform. And, you know, I don't know if you look at other teams because you only cover Clemson, but I do these for other teams and they're all over the map. Like there's usually there's sometimes that's a huge gap of, you know, people not performing the way that they were expecting, or, you know, if it's like App State or someone where people play better than their recruiting rankings and things like that. But Clemson's, I mean, it's, it's almost a straight line right across the top mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you're talking about like top five classes. Um, and I wonder, you know, what that means in terms of, you know, kind of the, the state of things, right? You know, not looking at this year's class and next year's class, but like the health of the program and its recruiting, I think
0: that if you are a, another team on Clemson's schedule and you are seeing that they have competed in all these college football playoffs and had all this success with I mean, this was the first cycle in 2020 that Dabo Sweeney ever had a top five class. I think you're probably pretty terrified.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's one of my main takeaways. And and just this idea that, um, you know, Clemson is able to get these, you know, we've made fun of this term, but generational quarterbacks, right? Sure. Um. Every couple of years yeah yeah they're 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 not generational, they're just you know elite 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 um but i I think that that is something that also jumps out when you look at these charts um again as someone who has done them for programs like Rutgers and purdue and and t c u like th- this is not a typical um a typical chart where where a you are you know recruiting at this level, but also they're actually performing better than they even ranked which is remarkable at that level
0: i'm really proud of you for getting a rutgers reference into this podcast yes how has that taken this long i don't know i don't know do people know about your affinity for rutgers
1: how i just always try to to slide them into the conversation (laughs) i think people know right they follow you at all times i mean i'm sure they do i'm sure they do i tweet about rutgers as much as possible and drafted (laughs) drafted a sandwich that is on as much as possible that's amazing with Rutgers junk food grease trucks yeah i sandwiches. didn't know what that was when you did that but that's okay oh, well you know you know grace eventually mike and i our producer mike and i will get you caught up on all things new jersey you're slowly learning i feel like over the last year you've learned but we're continuing to work at it
0: yeah that's true i st- i still don't know what a fat sandwich is that is that a new jersey
1: thing yeah. They're, they're, just like very unhealthy sandwiches. It's like a lot of breaded items. Like I think the one that I drafted for our sandwich draft, if anyone saw it on Twitter was, I think it had, um, mozzarella sticks, fries, maybe chicken fingers all in it with marinara. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like a heart attack in a sandwich. Wow. I'm, I'm speechless. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the other interesting parts of the, the state of the program. Um, you know, one that usually when we do Clemson every year is basically a total non-factor is a uh, coaching change. Yeah. So, so as you're evaluating like what the significance of them of they are like, walk me through the the behind the scenes like the, the thought process behind how much you think Jeff Scott's departure ultimately matters. I mean,
0: I think it definitely matters just because, like you said, Clemson is is a school that really has a lot of staff continuity. Like, this was the first time that I had written about a change, and it was kind of weird. I was like, oh, this is a section people deal with normally. But, you know, you look at Jeff, and, and he's just been there for so long. And not only was he the co-offensive coordinator and wideouts coach, but I think the biggest piece that you lose with Jeff Scott leaving is his recruiting. I mean, this guy just recruited Florida – like no other and and now he's obviously in Florida at USF. So, I am interested to kind of see if if Clemson can continue that Florida pipeline with him gone. But in terms of the actual like on-field product, I think I think Dabo and Clemson feel really good about Tyler Grisham, this 32-year-old who played for Dabo has really known Dabo since he was, golly, like an elementary school kid, maybe. Middle, I mean, he's known him his whole life. He, he went to camp at Alabama when, when Dabo was a coach there, then played for him at Clemson, um, kind of went off to have a, a little bit of a pro career, mainly practice squads, uh, but has been at Clemson, you know, for, for six years, kind of waiting for this opportunity between being an analyst and... And a um, grad assistant. So this is a guy that, uh, you know, Dabo Sweeney says there's, there's never been someone in the history of Clemson football that's been more prepared for this wide receivers job. And I, I'm inclined to believe him.
1: Did you catch yourself saying, golly. Golly. I, do you not golly. say that? No. Oh, my no. gosh. Wow, Grace, you're—it's too wholesome. Too Most wholesome people who sometimes. listen to this
0: podcast are going to side with me on this. They're going to not know what no, a fat just, sandwich is, and they're going to be like, "My goodness," type of people.
1: Probably, but it just—it sounds so wholesome. It just makes me miss you, Grace. I miss you We're too. Socially distanced, but also we would have normally been distanced anyway. So this you know, is true. It's yeah. Like, it's sort of a sort of that. Um, let's talk about the schedule part. Um, so in in these state of the programs again, the. Um, The thinking is just if the season happens normally um, or if it can be, you know, in the same schedule, where are the potential roadblocks, stumbling blocks, slight bumps in the road, if anything, for Clemson?
0: I really think there's only one. Um, I think you probably agree with that. November 7th at Notre Dame. I mean, I'm just looking at the rest of the schedule and it's just I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just kind of business as usual. Georgia Tech, Louisville, they play Virginia um, in September. Uh, obviously, they saw them in the ACC Championship in 2019. Notre Dame being on the road, I think, is going to be a big one. It does come right after Clemson's bye week, which I think Dabo will be pretty pumped about. But um, I think that's, that's kind of how they're going to have to state their case. I, I mean, as usual, this is kind of business as usual. They have to win that big marquee non-conference game to state their case for the playoff. Otherwise, the rest of their schedule typically looks a little bit too weak.
1: Yeah, and I, I sort of I know you got into this a little bit about you know their 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 rankings and kind of their treatment from the the CFP last year, and I I, I see both sides of this right where if you're Clemson you you can't control this you can't control what other people think of your schedule, but also I can see where the playoffs coming in right so you know I, I, it, it's it's a it's a catch twenty two where I think it's potentially a lot of the same issues as last year where if you struggle at all everyone's gonna watch. And then, if you blow people out, no one watches you, right? Like, right. I, I really think that it's it's that same problem that they had last year in terms of like kind of the the national perspective, the um, people's understanding of of how good you can be um, based on the level of competition, the perception of the competition. Even if you have teams in the ACC that are taking significant strides and getting better.
0: For sure, yeah. I mean, like the product that Clemson put out in 2019 was elite, elite football. Yes. But it was not compelling. It was, you know, if you're just a, a a bystander who who doesn't care about either team, you're probably pretty bored after halftime. So, yeah, you're you're. I think you hit the nail on the head with this. It is kind of catch 22 because it's you know you struggle and it's like whoa, you're not allowed to struggle. You know, your schedule is is not strong enough, but then you blow them out and it's like well. Duh, <laughs> you know, right? You have to blow them out. So, I don't know. I mean, I am interested to see kind of the steps that, you know, Louisville. I think we would both agree had a much better year last year than we thought they would under Scott Satterfield in year one, and and I think that there's some progress there. I'm excited to see kind of what where Florida State goes from here um, on the coastal side. I mean, Mack Brown and North Carolina are recruiting their tails off right now, so I don't I don't know if if that's maybe a, an ACC championship contender down the line. So. There there's some pieces, but right now it's just Clemson is just so unbelievably far ahead that, you know, I I don't know when the gap might start to close.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I sort of wonder if some of the better contenders or teams that are gonna kind of start to close the gap might come out of the coastal. I mean, I think I think within the within the division, you, you've got to expect that that Florida State's going to come back. Um, I, I think really highly of Scott Satterfield and what he's doing at Louisville. Sure. But I'm I'm honestly more intrigued by like North Carolina and you know what is what does Duke do with Chase Bryce and and they can only really get better from where they were coming from last year. Um, you know, it, Miami theoretically should be good, right? At some point, they're supposed to be contenders on a year in year out basis. So. I'm almost more intrigued to see what the Coastal looks like in a year, two years, um, you know, for those matchups potentially in the title game against a team like Clemson and see if there can really be, you know, some some gap closure there. Maybe. I mean, again, some of this is just optimistic, right? We don't want to see Clemson win every game by 50 points. But I do think that there are some teams within the league that could potentially get pretty good in these next couple years.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be great for the league. Exciting. I mean, you remember, it was not that long ago when Clemson, Florida State, and Louisville with, you know, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, it was Mm -hmm. like those three games, whoever was the best of those three were going to probably win the entire ACC because the Coastal was going to put someone in the title that couldn't keep up at all, really. You know, I mean... Clemson played like six and six pit not that long ago. So Hey, hey,
1: now listen. <laughs> no, we are not criticizing any part of the coastal when they went seven for seven. That is a that miracle. Is true. And we should be grateful that it happened. That was beautiful. I, I okay. can't
0: imagine how happy we no, were that day.
1: I I was very happy. No criticism there. But yeah, I, I I'm with you, and it would be nice to get to those those musty TV games. Right. You know, again, instead of kind of talking ourselves into you know, BC and, and things that, you know, if one player gets injured or, you know, is, is, is not a hundred percent, those games aren't, aren't close anymore. So um, I, I do think that that's something to track and, and you're right about North Carolina and their recruiting and, and, and steps like that that, that are going to signal that in, you know, if, if it's not this year in, in the coming years. Um, Grace, before we wrap up um, again, this is kind of like a, this is a wholesale look at the program. It's the state of the Clemson program. Big picture, what is that?
0: I mean, they are just—you you look at what the, all that they've accomplished already without, like we said, a, a top-tier uh, recruiting class. And I, I think you look around programs of the country, and, and you—it's—you'd be hard pressed to find one that's built for long-term, like sustainable success. I think more than Clemson right now. I mean, you just have all of the pieces um uh, still like a young relatively young coach, Dabo just turned 50. I mean, their their recruiting machine's not going to slow down. Like I just yeah. This thing just seems to be built for the long haul.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's there's no it's not like you have an overly senior loaded team that's going to be young the year later. You're not going to have gaps in any key positions and that continuity in the coaching staff, even with the one adjustment, it just jumped out at me when you say, you know, the person sliding into that role, probably couldn't even have been more prepared to do so. And that's a luxury. And um, I I think that you're absolutely right that, you know, if you're looking anywhere else that, you know, kind of is poised for long term, short, medium and long term future, you know, you got to start with Clemson, maybe Ohio State second there. But that's Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's the top of the list. And um i think that is the state of clemson's program and um again if you haven't read the piece grace went super super deep into every single position group um you know and even some of those uh you know guys that could potentially flash and could potentially have breakthrough moments so be sure to check that out on the athletic but for grace rayner i'm nicole auerbach this was protect the rock the clemson podcast for the athletic and we will see you soon